Father, we ask now that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we pray, O God, that your voice would be louder and more defining for us than all of the other voices around us. God, we need you to break into our life with a word of hope and encouragement. God, we need you to remind us of your love. We need you to reassure us that we belong to you. We need you to exhort us, God, to be faithful as your people. And so come by your spirit and do your work in and through and among us this morning, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So if you are joining us for the first time today, we have been in a series together entitled Every Square Inch. And we've been talking together about what it looks like to follow Jesus, not just in our church or our religious lives, not just on Sunday, but what does it look like to follow Jesus into every nook and cranny of our lives? What does it look like to follow Jesus at home and in our marriage and uh, at work and and in the neighborhood? And today what we're going to be talking about is what does it look like to bring Jesus to bear witness to Jesus in all of these different spaces that we occupy throughout the week. In other words, today we're going to be talking together about evangelism. Now, um, I've always felt a bit of a tension when it comes to evangelism. Uh, On the one hand, I'm absolutely for it. You know, God has acted astoundingly in the death and resurrection of Jesus to defeat the power of sin and death and darkness. And in his resurrection from the dead, God is making everything new. And Jesus has changed my life. And I want my friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors to know about the transformative power of Jesus. And so I, 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 I am absolutely for evangelism. On the other hand, it seems like there have been so many bad models of evangelism in the church. And as I was getting ready this week, I, I made just a, a brief list of a few of the maybe some of the more egregious examples of bad models. Um, uh, for example, there is the stereotypical bullhorn evangelist which almost everyone I know in church is not for this kind of thing. And usually it's some fringe guy who's got some daddy issues or something, just a little bit off balance and winds up in a large crowd and yells at people and has signs and whatnot. And uh, of course, there's, there's not just the, the bullhorn evangelist, there's also the gimmicky evangelist. And I think uh, one of the most egregious examples of uh, gimmicks in evangelism came out uh, just a while back. It was called an Evangie Cube. And I think this was particularly made for people like me who are children of the 80s who grew up with Rubik's Cube. So, you know, I guess you were, you, the idea is that you walk up to somebody and you say, hey, you know, are you, you like Rubik's Cube? Well, I got an Evangie Cube. And then there's like the flames of hell on the Evangie Cube and then the glories of heaven. And, and I guess you tell the story of the gospel and people get converted or something, you know. But, but you know, obviously this is... Uh, a very bad example. Uh, But there are other gimmicks that are out there. Uh, There's, of course, the obnoxious evangelist, uh, the the guy who's bold at the party but doesn't have the emotional intelligence to read the room, you know? Um, And then uh, one of the most common ones, I think, that exists in our churches is the so that evangelist. And so this is the person that befriends you so that they can have an opportunity to share the gospel with you. And I know in our churches, we talk a lot about friendship evangelism, and of course, there is a place for that. There's, there's something to that. But when we use people in order to, 
you know, form a relationship and pretend that we are their friend and we invite them into our home, not because we are their friend and we do want to invite them into our home, but in order that we might be able to share the gospel with them, there's something that's a little bit gross about that, you know? And if you've ever been on the other end, kind of the receiving end of a so that friendship, uh, you've recognized that. I can remember when I was in Turkey uh, a few years back, we were invited over to the home of, uh, of a Muslim family. And it was interesting, they were, they were just so warm and um, you know, kind, and we were strangers, and they invited us in. And it was interesting because about halfway through the meal, we realized that they had invited us over in order to convert us. They were trying to convert us. And I just thought, this is what it feels like. And, and, and so you know, there's all kinds of bad models of evangelism out there. And I think what we need in the church are some new and better models of evangelism. But we're going to be looking at Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6, because I do think it gives us a very helpful model of evangelism. And in this text, I discern three different ways in which we, as God's people, can bear witness to Jesus, or we can participate in the mission of God to bear witness to Jesus among our friends and our family members and our neighbors and our coworkers and throughout the world. Three ways in which we can participate in God's mission to get the message about Jesus out. And the first way in which we are invited to participate in God's mission to get the gospel out is number one, through persistent prayer. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, but we're going to revisit it again. Look at what it says in verse two. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. It's interesting, in this text, he describes preaching the gospel as preaching the mystery of Christ. And earlier, Paul spoke in the same language to talk about his own vocation as an evangelist, a church planner, an apostolic leader in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And listen to how he puts it there. He says in verse 24 of chapter 1, you can turn back there if you have a Bible, he says this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So he says, I have been given a task, a responsibility from God to go out and to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And then he says this, verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God was pleased to let this good news about his own grace and love and glory be known to all of the world. And he says he has chosen me to be an agent proclaiming and preaching this message. Verse 28, he says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says, I am toiling, I am working hard in my vocation to make the word of God fully known. 
And there is toil, there is labor in the ministry of preaching and teaching Christ. I, was, uh, I remember years ago attending a preaching conference where a preacher uh, said that uh, preaching, the preparation and delivery of, of a sermon might be the closest thing that a man will ever come to giving birth. And I remember it was after uh, my third child had been born, I went home and I immediately shared this illustration with my wife. <laughs> she didn't agree. <laughs> but certainly... There is toil, there is work in understanding this ancient sacred text of Scripture. And there is toil, there is work that needs to be done in understanding kind of the cultural moment in which we now live and seeking to bridge the ancient text with our current cultural in which we live. There's toil and work involved in that. And Paul says, I toiled, I worked, I struggled. He traveled, he was in prison. He suffered all for the ministry of the gospel. But it's, inter- it's interesting because when you get to chapter four at the close of the letter, Paul says, all of my toil and my labor and my suffering is not enough. I need something more than my own work. He needs the power of God that is accessed when, his, when God's peoples pray over his ministry. So he says in verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer. And then he says, and pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I need God to go before me and open doors of opportunity. I need God to work inside of me and give me creativity, give me prophetic insight into the people I need to speak to. I need God. And so he says, you guys, I need you to pray for me. So here's what he's telling us. He's saying, look, one of the most essential ways that you and I can participate in God's mission to make his word fully known in our neighborhoods and communities and throughout the world is to pray fervently and persistently and in faith on behalf of those who are called with the vocation and calling to be church planners and evangelists and missionaries. And I'll just say on a very personal note, I need your prayers. Please pray for me that God would give me more and more insight so that I could make God's word fully known, that I could have clarity and understanding to know how to speak well and to the people that need to hear the gospel the most. And this is one of the most essential ways in which we can partner and participate in God's mission to make the gospel known. It is through our prayers. You know, I remember um, I was sharing with you guys last week about my grandma Thea, who kept her, you know, tremendous prayer journals. And I, I remember, you know, my grandma was, she's one of the top two or three most influential, you know, the greatest spiritual influences in my life. And I, I can remember talking with her and her saying to me, you know, Josh, she said, I had o- I've always wanted to be a missionary, but your grandpa, he never wanted to be. And so, you know, I've spent my life as a, you know, a housewife and a mother, and, and that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what I've done. And I, I never got to go out in the mission field the way I wanted to. But it's fascinating because my grandmother has spent her whole life, or she spent her whole life praying for me, and I think she prayed me into the kingdom and then eventually prayed me into pastoral ministry. And she prayed for my brother, and she prayed him into the kingdom, I think, and into pastoral ministry. 
into um, my uncles and cousins. I have an uncle who was a, a missionary in Africa, another one who was a missionary up in Alaska to indigenous peoples, uh, a cousin who's a missionary and church planner in Austria, another one who's a, a church planner in Southern Oregon, another one who's a church planner in Washington. And Grandma Thea prayed over us over and over and over again. And through her prayers, she participated in the fruit that was produced in all of these ministries. Now, Grandma Thea will never be written about in the annals of church history. And yet, through her praying, she impacted thousands of lives. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to give too much credit to Grandma Thea. I know that uh, people who pray and people who preach in any child of Adam and Eve are weak, frail human creatures. And ultimately, what causes people to change and the gospel to go forward is the power and the grace of God who is sovereignly at work all throughout this world as the gospel is preached. And yet God in his sovereignty and in his freedom, he has chosen to use instruments like us as his witnesses. He invites us to join him both with our words, but also with our prayers to get this message out. And so number one, you can join in God's mission through your persistent praying. Are you? Do you? Secondly, we are invited not only to join in God's mission through our persistent praying, but secondly, by living an intriguing life. By living an intriguing life, you can participate in God's mission to get this gospel out. Look at what Paul says in chapter four, verse five. He says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. He's talking here again about our life out in the neighborhood, our life before the face of those who are unchurched, our friends who do not yet believe. He's saying, look, as you are living out in the world, he says, embody this way of wisdom among other people so that, look at the end of verse six, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's interesting. It's almost as if what he's assuming is that Christians will be living such intriguing lives that their lifestyle choices, what they're doing with their time and their money and how they're, how they're raising their kids and, and, and how they're engaged in their studies and how they're performing at their vocation, it's as if they're going to be doing things in such intriguing ways that it's going to evoke questions that will demand an answer. In other words, he is assuming that followers of Jesus will live lives that are worth questioning. In other words, one of, the core, one of the core ways in which you engage in the mission of God is by living a questionable life. You know, when um, we bought our house a couple years ago, I can remember we walked in, we saw the place, we thought it was just magnet. We just, were just blown away. And um, it was right in a season where every time you put an offer on a house, it was like the, the value would, I mean, the, there would be like a bidding war. And the, I, I guess we're still in that season, aren't we? It doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. If you're looking for a house, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, we put in an offer 
the first 24 hours that the house was on the market. And immediately, a little bit later in the same day, somebody put in an offer that was $40,000 higher than ours. This is all within like the first day that it's on the market. And it was fascinating because the sellers looked at our, our little family profile. She, uh, they talked with our realtor and with the, uh, the, the seller's realtor. And they said, we're going to sell this house to the Swanson family. Now, if it went up $40,000 within 24 hours, what would it do if they just let it keep sitting there? I mean, the house could have easily gone for two, dollars $300,000 over the asking price, and yet they chose against the grain of perceived wisdom to sell us at a lower cost. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, why did they do that? I just thought that was an intriguing choice. And I thought they're not operating according to the perceived wisdom of the world, but they're operating, they're living their life out of some alternate kind of wisdom. When we were living in Seal Beach, uh, back, you know, when Alicia and I first got married, we were renting from a lady who was named, named Verna, and she was this amazing older lady who was in her 80s, and, and she was just a real can-do lady. But she was renting to us about 70 or 80% below the market value. And she was not a dumb lady. She had her own calculation. She would raise our rent. It was like 3.24% a year or something like, something very odd. And... Um, And she wasn't operating according to the perceived wisdom of the world. She was operating according to an alternate wisdom. And I was wondering, like, why was she doing that? I think Paul is is, is imagining that Christians are going to be living their lives out in the world in such a way that would evoke curiosity. Why would you make those decisions with your finances like that? Why would you spend your family vacation going to a youth retreat, you know, as as an adult leader? Why, Why... why would you, you know, invest so much of your resources in, in that, that work? I mean, wh- why? Why? And that we would live in such a way that it would evoke questions. And I think the problem among so much of us in the church is that we just are not living lives that are very interesting, that are very intriguing, that are evoking very many questions. Because we have the same kind of emotional health issues that everyone else does. We are overcome with the same anxieties and depressions that everyone else is. We are absorbed and consumed and addicted to technology and pain pills and, and alcohol like everyone else is. And, and we are, we're, 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 we're just kind of a disaster in so many different ways. Like, and yet we're, 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 we're living a nice upper middle class lifestyle in some cases or whatever. And, and it's just not different than the surrounding culture, and yet we have a different set of ideas and beliefs, but not a different way of life. And what Paul is saying is walk in wisdom toward outsiders. When he speaks here about walking in wisdom, for Paul, that word wisdom, yes, it, it does mean more than a set of propositions in the head. It does apply to a lived life in the world. But it's not simply talking about street smarts, or doing life well, it does kind of involve that. For Paul, he connects wisdom with the person of Jesus. Earlier in this letter, he said that in Christ are hid all of the mysteries and all of the riches of God's wisdom are embodied in Jesus. If you want to know what the alternate wisdom of God looks like lived out in this world, look at Jesus. 
In Jesus, you see God's wisdom taking on flesh and blood and lived among us. And there we find a wisdom that is marked above all by compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and the ability to bear with others in love and forgive others. This is the wisdom of God that we are to embody among our friends and neighbors and coworkers and roommates and people at the university. This is, this is what would make us intriguing. This is a life that would raise questions. You know, I, I was just thinking that this is so essential for the church in this cultural moment because especially in 2020, the evangelical church in America has had incredibly terrible PR. And we have become absorbed in conspiracy theories, or at least known to be that way. Uh, evangelicals were associated with the, uh, you know, insurrection on January 6th. Evangelicals, uh, I mean, uh, it seems like there's just this steady stream of pedophile priests and celebrity pastors who are coming out and, and being exposed for their abuse of sex and money and power. And, and what our friends need is people who embody the way of Jesus in the neighborhood. And they need to see us transformed by this gospel of Jesus and practicing this wise and life-giving way of Jesus. And they need to see it lived out before the words we speak will have any credibility. Dallas Willard said this, he said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And it's when we are living that way that the words we speak have credibility and the lives that we live actually evoke questions and people might want to be interested or they might be interested in what might be different about our life. And so number one, we can participate in the mission of God. We, we have to participate in God's mission to make the gospel known in this world through our persistent prayers. Friends, we have got to be a praying church. And we have got to not only participate through our persistent praying, we have also got to participate through engaging and embracing and cultivating an intriguing life that reflects the way of Jesus and that evokes questions among the people who live around us. But thirdly, we, we, we engage in God's mission through our gracious and salty speech. Look at what it says back in the text. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And then he says this, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He talks here about speech that is both gracious and salty. Now, the word gracious uh, comes from a Greek word, charis, uh, grace. It's translated as grace. And it's from the word where we get the word charisma. And it, it's the speech that is kind of winsome and compelling. 
And then uh, this word salty in the ancient world, or to, 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 to talk about speech that was um, salty would be speech that was interesting, that aroused some curiosity. It was speech that had some flavor in it. And in fact, one uh, Bible translation says, let your speech be, be with the flavor of wit. <laughs> F.F. Bruce said, the salt of the earth may reasonably be expected to have some savor in their language. There was an ancient writer in the third century BC who said that the speech of the academics was, quote, unsalted and insipid. I hope that's not still true, Dr. Cavolo. No. But I think um, what he's getting at here is he said, look, um, as you engage in discourse with your neighbors and coworkers, your speech ought to be both winsome and compelling. Now, I, I don't think he's, he's saying that every Christian ought to be witty and charming, though most of us could stand to add a little more wit and charm in our discourse with people. Amen? Um, But I I think at the very least what he's talking about is engaging in speech that goes into conversations that have meaning and that are marked by civility and grace as you engage. You know, we live in a cultural moment right now where discourse is just marked by incivility. And the voices that we tend to listen to are shrill voices in our culture. And too often in the church, the voices that get the loudest play are voices that are shrill and that are preaching to the choir, that are are speaking about all of the ills, everything that's wrong out there with society, and and talking about how we need to be different than what's out there, and and these voices that are speaking to the choir, but they don't how to graciously engage with people who don't share any of the same presuppositions that they do about the world. And Paul has a vision of Christians engaging in ways that are marked by this civil and gracious discourse where you have conversations with people about things that matter in a way that is compelling and interesting and winsome. And you know, this does connect with the previous two points. I think as you are continually praying and looking for opportunities and praying over, you know, kind of seeing the mission of God, the gospel of God go out, as you are cultivating in your own life a different, intriguing way of life, and as you're engaged with people around you, you don't, you're not living in the seclusion of a little Christian ghetto or Christian bubble, but you're actually inviting people into your home who, who don't have any of the same belief systems as you do. You're inviting people into your life that don't share any of, of your views of the world, that as you are engaging with these people, that you'll be in conversations and that it'll create opportunities to actually talk about things in your life that matter, about who we are and why we're here and what has been so significant that has changed your life. And it'll allow you opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. You know, I I think um, one of the best models I've, I've ever seen of somebody who I think has done this so well, who's just engaged with people where they're at and through living and engaging life has, has evoked questions and then has provided opportunities to actually speak graciously and salty around to the people that, that, that are in their life is uh, Father Gregory Boyle, 
Some of you will know about him. He started and he runs uh, Homeboy Industries down in downtown Los Angeles. I just got through reading his book, uh, Tattoos on the Heart. If you've never read it, it's just a wonderful, engaging read. I'd really encourage you to check it out. But he's just got multiple examples of how he has chosen to live his life in this impoverished, very hard and violent area of Los Angeles and just be in kinship with people who are so different from himself and how that has, and he's, he's lived as a faithful presence of Christ in those neighborhoods. It's about questions that it's allowed him to talk graciously and salty around people about the kingdom of God. But he tells one story in this book of uh, on a summer night, he's sitting on his bike and he said he settled in the heart of the second playground. It's still light out and soon he says, I'm surrounded by homies from this barrio. I straddle the bike and listen to the homies begging on each other. He said it seems to be a, a favorite pastime of the homies is just to uh, critique and make fun of and, you know, uh, of one another. There are eight who ultimately gather here and the banter is fast and no prisoner is taken. In a flash, one of the homies named Minor points up to a telephone wire perched above the apartments. Look, G, it's an owl. They call Father Gregory G. Yeah, another says, uh, an, an owl. In the projects, a third chimes in, setting our collective volume to a hush indicating that some cathedral has just been entered. And sure enough, there is the largest owl imaginable resting on the telephone wire. We stand in awe in a straight line, eyeing this anomalous creature that has chosen to visit the poorest, most owl-less sector in Los Angeles. Pigeons and mice are generally our only wildlife. They stand there in silence. One suggests getting a gun the intervention of a homie prevents it. And then another says, it's a sign. Another says, from God. What's it mean, G, says Minor, the wide-eyed pup of the litter. I lean into him with a whisper so all can hear. It's God saying to give up your weapons, love your enemies, and work for peace. They all moan, and Gonzo says, you think every sign means that. <laughs> <laughs> in another place, he shares a story about a tough, hard-edged young mom named Shady who shares this dream with Father Gregory. And in the dream, she's at mass and Father Gregory is presiding and there's a coffin with a tiny baby in front. And she's terrified to look into the coffin because she's afraid it might be her own baby. And Father Gregory, in the dream, encourages her to come and look, and she finally agrees. And right when she's about to peer into the coffin, a white dove flies out and circles around her head and then circles around the chapel. And then she wakes from her dream, and she, she asks Father Gregory, what's it all mean? And he responds, everyone knows the white dove stands for peace. And so God is asking you to move toward forgiveness and healing and peace, and everything is going to be fine. And he says she listens, but there are wheels turning that seem operating well out of his view. And he places his hand on her forearm and continues. Here's the only thing that matters, kiddo. How did the dream make you feel? At this point, she begins crying. That's the thing, G. At first I was scared, like maybe that's my daughter in the casket. 
But when I saw the dove, I felt only peace and love in my heart. He says, I have never seen Shady cry like this. He says, God only wants you to feel those things, Mahita. Love in your heart, peace. You'll be okay. You see, it was when he incarnated the gospel and lived a compelling and intriguing life right in the very midst of this community and engaged in kinship and relationship that he was actually able to engage in these conversations with people. He disagreed with their lifestyle, but he knew they disagreed with their own lifestyle. And they had been sucked into this violent, kind of difficult, hard, just terrible situation. And he wanted to see them get their life back by God's grace. And so he was there. And so, church family, we are invited in this text to engage in God's mission to make this good news of the healing, gracious kingdom of God that has broken into this world in Jesus. We are invited to participate in this great work through our persistent praying and through our intriguing living and through our gracious and salty speaking with others. And as we do that in the weeks and in the months and in the years ahead, by God's grace, would God allow us to see people meet Jesus and be transformed by his grace, amen? Amen. God, we ask that as we now turn to this practice, that you would open up our hearts again to your tangible, enfleshed love that walked among us, that laid down your life for us. And may your love nourish us afresh and sustain our mission in this world. Amen.